This morning we're going to do an exercise in biblical theology. What I mean by that is biblical theology is sort of looking at themes or ideas across the entire Bible. Uh, What it's aimed to do is, we're in the book of Joshua right now, which is fantastic, but Joshua fits into the larger Word of God, into the larger Scriptures, and the larger plan of God. And what we want to do today is kind of step back from the forest, uh, or the trees, and we want to see the forest. We want to take kind of the 30,000 foot view of what God is up to and sort of track a theme or an idea of how God is at work in connection to what he's doing in the book of Joshua. So what I need you to do is I need you to take a Bible in hand. If you don't have one, there's one in the rack in front of you or under your seat. We're going to look at a couple of passages together. And then if you want, in the notes, there's a more detailed uh, page of notes for you to fill out as we go along. If taking notes is actually a distraction for you, just forget about the notes. Pay close attention, okay? Notes or no notes. The thing that's not an option is to not pay attention. Because this is, a, this is more of a teaching than a sermon, and so I need you to kind of stick with me. I've got some graphics that I'm going to use to help us kind of keep track of where we're at. But in order to not get lost as we're pulling the threads together, uh, I need you to stick with me. The notes may help, but paying close attention is going to help. And this graphic hopefully will help. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 6. So take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 6. That's page 173. And we're about the 13th century B.C., and we're going to start our story thinking about the city of Jericho. Last week, we talked about Jericho and the battle of Jericho and how the walls fell down. This week, we're going to focus on the aftermath, what happened uh, after the walls came down. We're picking up the story in Joshua chapter 6, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had, been, who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. 
So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Now the question for us this morning is, why does Joshua curse Jericho? Why do they come in and slaughter everybody? Men and women, young and old. And not only just the humans, but also the livestock. Why do they take all the possessions in Jericho and burn all the stuff? Why do they do that? I mean, after all, this seems a little much. It seems like a bit of overkill. They've already won. They've defeated the city. Why go through and curse the place? I mean, you may not know it yet because we haven't seen the rest of the book of Joshua. They're going to go to other cities and they're going to fight other battles. They're not going to treat those other cities the way they do Jericho. Jericho is unique. So the question is, what's going on here? Why this curse? Why this really harsh treatment? Well, in order to answer that question, we've got to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, you don't need to turn. I've got this one uh, up here for us. Back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13. Remember, God said to Joshua, the key to success is when you go in to con conquer the land, do everything I wrote in the scriptures for you to do. If you obey everything, you're going to be prosperous and successful. <clears throat> well, here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying... Let's go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt, and none of the condemned things are to be found in your hands. This is what Deuteronomy 13 says, but interestingly, it's saying this about Israelite towns. God is saying when you get into the promised land and after you take over these towns, if there is an idolatry that the whole city participates, if there is wickedness and sinfulness, you've got to treat that city this way. Kill everything in it, all the livestock, burn it to the ground, don't take any plunder, none of it. It's all contaminated. And we think that when, Je when Joshua gets to Jericho, he's obeying Deuteronomy 13. See, the point is, is it's possible to read Joshua 6. It's possible to think, oh, God hates the Canaanites and he likes the Israelites. So what he's doing is some form of ethnic cleansing. He's removing one people group and he's putting another people group in. There's a certain group of people he doesn't like and there's another group of people he likes. That's not the case. Deuteronomy 13 is being written about how Israelites behave. And the point is, it doesn't matter if you're a Canaanite or an Israelite, God hates sin. That's the point of Jericho, and that's the point of Joshua chapter 6. So if you're tracking with me here, the first point we need to take away from Joshua chapter 6 is Jericho is cursed because it's a sign that sin leads to death. And although in Joshua 6 it's not made explicit, 
other portions of the scripture that we've looked at in the past have shown us explicitly that what was going on in Jericho was some of the most vile and detestable sinful behavior you could engage in, especially including idolatry. And then it's not like the people living in Jericho were innocent. They are guilty of the same thing that you and I could be guilty of, that the children of Israel could be guilty of. They were guilty of idolatry. And so Joshua is coming and he's destroying everything as a way of making the point, sin leads to death. Sin doesn't lead to just problems. It leads to death, to destruction. Everything gets destroyed. The land, it's all cursed and destroyed and destruction is everywhere. And the point why everything is burned to the ground, everyone is killed, all the livestock, is sin leads to death. Total, complete destruction. God's not playing favorites. This is what he will do to the Israelites. We're going to see it in Joshua chapter 7. When they choose sin, sin always leads to death. This is not an ethnic cleansing thing. This is God making a statement. Sin leads to death. You say, well, okay, that still seems harsh. (laughs) That still seems a bit much. That's why in our passage we're told the story again of Rahab, the prostitute. You see, the point is, is God does not like destruction. God does not revel in death. God doesn't like cursing. That's why he had two spies sent into the city of Jericho, made sure that every living person in the city of Jericho knew that those spies were there, had the spies come and offer to the people rescue. Now Rahab the prostitute and her family were the only ones who took advantage of it, but God was offering to all of them. And here we see Rahab getting rescued. Here we see Rahab getting saved. Now I think this has got to be a pretty amazing picture visually. Because remember, they just walked around the walls of the city 13 times. Now imagine those walls all falling in. You know what would have been one of the really, really cool things to see? A small portion of one of those walls wouldn't have fallen in. Why not? Rahab lives in the walls of the city. This is a sign. Look, the rest of the walls went down, but it didn't have to be that way. Rahab is here as a sign that God wants to rescue people out of destruction and out of death. Now, there's two things we got to remember about Rahab. Number one, the Bible makes it very clear she's a prostitute, which means she's an outcast. She lives by herself in the city. She doesn't live with any of her family. Nobody wants to live with Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute, and that makes her an outcast in the city of Jericho. But the second thing to remember about Rahab is what God does for her. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at her story. He not only protects her and saves her, he makes her a part of the people of Israel so much so that Rahab ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. I'll show you the passage again. Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' genealogy. Jesus, the Lord and Savior of all the earth. His genealogy? Salmon, the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. That's this lady, this prostitute that gets rescued here in Joshua chapter 6. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. And of course, King David, the ancestor of Jesus himself. And so with Rahab, we learn a second point 
from this story in Joshua chapter 6. God wants to rescue people from the curse of death. The law, Deuteronomy 13, that cursed Jericho. But God wants to rescue people. And so he sent two spies into the land. Rahab was the only one who responded, but Rahab and her whole family were rescued. And it wasn't just that Rahab got to live. It's that God poured out his blessings on her, gave her a fantastic husband, we know a little bit about him, uh, gave her an amazing experience to be in the ancestry of Jesus himself. Now we know what happened, a little bit of what happened to Rahab after Joshua 6. The question is, what happened to the city of Jericho? We've told Rahab's story. What I now want to tell you is Jericho's story. This is not the end for the city of Jericho. And this is the sort of biblical theology we want to do. We want to look at where the city of Jericho shows up in the Bible as we progress through history. So I'm going to show you those places. We're going to look at them together. The next one you don't need to turn to is in 2 Samuel 10. So we were in the 13th century B.C., We've now moved forward to the 10th century. So we're B.C., so getting smaller means we're getting closer towards Jesus. To the 10th century B.C., 2 Samuel chapter 10. Now the setup here is Israel's in the land because they came into the land in Joshua. They're in the land and David is the king. David is the best king uh, that Israel had and he is blessed by God. Things are going well. The kingdom is expanding They've either conquered or made alliances with the people around them. One of the people they made an alliance with are the Ammonites. And the Ammonite king and David are friends or allies, but the Ammonite king dies. David, wanting to express his sympathy, he sends some envoys from Israel to Ammon to express sympathies. The king's replacement, however, believes those envoys to be spies. And we pick up the story in chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. So Hanan, that's the king, the new king of the Ammonites, seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at, where, Jericho, till your beards have grown and then come back. What we learn about Jericho here is that Jericho is now a place of outcasts. Rahab was an outcast associated with Jericho, but she was an outcast from the city itself. Now Jericho itself has become a place of outcasts. Why? Well, because it's cursed. And even though by 2 Samuel 10 it's now part of Israelite territory, there's no city there, yet there are people who live in its vicinity But no decent, respectable Israelite would live in Jericho. That's a cursed place. So David has these men who are coming back who are greatly humiliated. And until their beards grow back, he says, well, where could you live and not be disgraced? Well, Jericho. Outcasts live in Jericho. Go stay at Jericho until your beards have grown back. Then you can rejoin decent society. And we get this picture that while there are some people living in Jericho, this is not where the decent people of Israel live. It's a place of outcasts. The third story, I'd like you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2, all we're doing, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 2 is page 291. 
All we're doing is tracking through uh, the stories of Jericho as they appear in the Bible. Now Jericho's mentioned a few other places. Sometimes it's just a a place that says across the Jordan by Jericho. But these are the stories of Jericho as we kind of track its history after Joshua 6. You're turning to 2 Kings 2. Let me set up what's going to happen in 2 Kings 2 by telling you what happens in 1 Kings 16. So we've moved forward to about the 9th century B.C., and we're being told in 1 Kings about a king named Ahab. Ahab is a very wicked king. He's not like David, his ancestor. He's not living in accordance with God's will. And one of the ways that the author of 1 Kings tells us how wicked Ahab is, is he includes this verse about something that happens to Jericho. In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Now, wait a second. I thought you weren't supposed to ever rebuild Jericho, right? right? Here he does, but he laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. That's the curse we looked at. Cursed is anyone who sets up the foundations of the city of Jericho. It'll cost him his firstborn son and his youngest son. And here, amazingly enough, an Israelite chooses to rebuild Jericho. Now we keep going. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And the point is that in this story, Jericho remains cursed. Sin still leads to death. Here's Hiel, who's chosen to willfully disobey Deuteronomy 13. He's chosen to willfully disobey the prophecy or ignore the prophecy or the curse that Joshua gives in Joshua chapter 6 and chooses in the audacity to rebuild Jericho, but the curse is still in effect. Hiel is killed because the city is cursed. Now, interestingly, at the time that we are told about all of, all of Ahab's bad deeds, the last one mentioned is the rebuilding of the city of Jericho. And then Elijah comes on the scene. So the city of Jericho is uniquely connected to the prophet Elijah. You see, the prophet Elijah is kind of the foremost in the age of prophets. He's a major figure in the Bible. He shows up many places. 1 Kings 17 is his introduction. That's the first time we hear of Elijah. That's the first time he comes on the scene. And what's really noteworthy is his introduction follows immediately on the heels of this news about Jericho, that things are so bad in Israel that somebody has the audacity to rebuild Jericho. And then Elijah comes on the scene. So Elijah the prophet is uniquely connected to the city of Jericho. That brings us to 2 Kings 2. 1 Kings 17 is Elijah's introduction. 2 Kings 2 is Elijah's departure to heaven. So 2 Kings 2 verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha, Elisha is his disciple, 
Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So here's what's happening. We've moved forward from the beginning of Elijah's ministry to the end of Elijah's ministry on earth. He's in Gilgal, and God says to Elijah, Elijah, I want you to go to Bethel. Elijah goes to Bethel. Elisha goes with him. God says, I want you to go from Bethel to Jericho. Elijah goes to Jericho. From Jericho, God sends him to the Jordan River. At the Jordan River, Elijah uses his cloak and miraculously causes the Jordan River under the Lord's power to part, and he goes out through the Jordan River on dry ground and then ascends to heaven in a chariot of fire. Now, as an aside, what God is having Elijah do is he's reversing the conquest. Bethel, that's Joshua 7. Jericho, Joshua 6. Miraculous Jordan River crossing, Joshua 3 and 4. Elijah is leaving Israel the way that they came into the land in Joshua chapter 6. He goes up to heaven in this chariot of fire. Elisha, his servant or his disciple, receives from the Lord a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Elisha, who's in the wilderness at this point, then comes back to the Jordan with his cloak, does the exact same thing Elijah does. The waters part, and Elisha walks into the promised land, just like the children of Israel did in Joshua all those years ago. He walks into the promised land, and where do you think the first city he goes to as he comes back in carrying the mantle of Elijah on him? Jericho. 2 Kings 2, verse 18. We'll kind of pick up the context so that we can see that he's in Jericho. When they returned to Elisha, what this is talking about, is there a group of prophets who came to Elisha and was like, where'd Elijah go? He went up to heaven. They're like, well, maybe God plopped him down somewhere else. Elisha's like, he didn't do that. They're like, well, can we go look for him? He's like, fine, go look for him. So they go off and look and they don't find him. They come back and they're like, we didn't find him. Yes, okay. <clears throat> they returned to Elisha who was staying in Jericho. He said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? You weren't going to find him. Now, verse 19, the people of the city, what city? Jericho, that's where we are, said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Why? It's cursed. It's cursed. The water's bad. Now, there's a city there because he all built the city. The city has returned, but the water supply is bad. Now, the reason why Jericho is one of the oldest inhabited cities on earth. The reason is because there's a spring there, and there's a great water supply. But at this point, it's terrible. It's killing people. And the land can't grow anything because of the water. The land's unproductive. The water is cursed. So, verse 20. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. The other point from this story is, God is rescuing the land from its curse. The water and the land were cursed by Joshua because of the sin of the people. But here comes God through Elijah's successor and using Elijah, who's uniquely connected 
to Jericho, Elijah's successor is coming to remove the curse. Now, just from the land and the water. But this demonstrates that God's not interested in cursing. He wants to rescue people. He wants to heal people. He doesn't want more people to die from bad water. He wants the land to be productive. And here is God bringing some rescue to the city of Jericho. Okay, this is the last story of Jericho in the Old Testament. Now, I told you that Elisha is Elijah's successor. That's true. But the New Testament tells us that Elijah has a more important successor, another successor other than Elisha. And the New Testament tells us that's Jesus Christ himself. See, the last prophecy of the Old Testament, the very last words of the Old Testament, is that Elisha will return preparing the way for the Lord to come. And so when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Elijah is there, his disciples say to him, why does Elijah have to come back before the Lord comes? Because you've just showed us that you're the Lord. Jesus says Elijah did come back, but you didn't recognize him because he came back in the form of John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for the Lord. And so the point is, Elijah's ultimate successor is not Elisha, but Jesus Christ himself. That's why it's no surprise that the last three mentions of the city of Jericho in the Bible are in connection with Jesus. We're going to look at the most important one in Luke chapter 19. So turn over to Luke chapter 19. It's page 852. While you're turning, let me mention the other two that are associated with Jesus. The first one is Luke 10. Jesus tells a parable about a good Samaritan who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way to Jericho, he has a near-death experience because he is robbed and beaten up and left for dead. Why? Why did Jesus choose Jericho? Remember, this is a parable. He can write any city he wants in there. Jericho is associated with death. The man who's going to Jericho experiences death almost on the way to Jericho. Who comes and rescues him? A Samaritan, which to the Jewish people would be considered an outcast. Okay, It's a story about rescue with an outcast uh, as part of the story. Second one is Luke 18. It's right before this one. We just didn't have time this morning to look at it. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus who's not technically in the city of Jericho because he's not allowed in. Why? He's an outcast. So he's outside the city walls of Jericho. He sees Jesus passing by. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus not only heals his eyesight, he gives him eternal life. Outcast and salvation associated with the city of Jericho. That's all the lead up to to Luke chapter 19. Look at it with me. Verse 1, Jesus entered where? Jericho. Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore, sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must 
stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, why did they say this about Zacchaeus? He's a tax collector. He's a tax collector. He's a sinner, which makes him an outcast, okay? In Israel at the time, as a tax collector, he would have been on par with whom? Prostitutes. Tax collectors and prostitutes. Why does Jesus say, I must go to your house today? All those years ago, when they first arrive at the land of Jericho, God sends two spies to go stay at the house of a what? A prostitute. Here is Jesus all these years later later saying, I'm coming to stay at your house, Zacchaeus. Look, this gospel presentation can't take place in the city. It's got to be in his house. And oh, by the way, who is Jesus a descendant of, by the way? This is Rahab's descendant returning to the city of Jericho, going to find an outcast, which means Jericho is still a place of outcasts. The good Samaritan, blind Bartimaeus, and here's this lowly tax collector. The only person he could possibly be on par with is a prostitute. And so a prostitute's descendant comes and finds him and says, I have to go to your house today. This is what Jesus says, or God says, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Any surprise that the phrase, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, is uttered in Jericho? Jericho is the place of outcasts. And the other point to take out of Jericho is that Jesus has come to rescue outcasts, to rescue sinners, to come and save people like Zacchaeus. Just like spies came to Rahab to announce, look, there is a God in heaven and his goal is not to destroy everybody, it's to save people. Jesus shows up in the town of Jericho and goes to Zacchaeus' house and says, here is the offer of God for salvation. See, God's not interested in death and destruction. That's not his goal. Cursing is the law-cursed Jericho. Here is Jesus coming, Rahab's descendant, Coming to say, God has sent me to seek and save the lost. Now one more point. And it's the most important one. It says in Luke 19 verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho is not his final destination. Where is he going? He is going to Jerusalem. If you want to look, look in the NIV of the chapter and the sort of section headings. The next one says the parable of the ten minas. Jesus is going to tell the parable of the ten minas, so it's appropriately titled. The next section, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, which means Jericho is his last stop as he's passing through to go to Jerusalem. Now, why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? To die. 
Why? Well, he just offered Zacchaeus salvation. But what's the problem? Zacchaeus and the city of Jericho are cursed. You can't simply walk into a cursed city and to a cursed person and announce salvation. There is a cost associated with that curse. And what is the cost? At the cost of his firstborn son, he will set up its foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will rebuild its gates. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, which as his only son makes him the oldest and the youngest. God gives his only son so that we may not perish. God doesn't like death. God doesn't like destruction so that we can have eternal life. Jesus is going to pay Joshua's curse. This is the point God is saying, I want to rescue the city of Jericho. If all you have is Joshua chapter 6, you're going to come away thinking you've got a vengeful, angry God who likes to destroy people. That is not the case at all. You have a God who is heartbroken at the sin and the destruction of our idolatry, of our choices, and a God who is willing to say, the law cursed that city, but I will pay whatever price is necessary to rescue it. At the cost of his firstborn son. At the cost of his youngest. God rescued Zacchaeus, but it cost him his son to do it. And God willingly and gladly paid the price. So what are you supposed to take out of this teaching today? Two things. Number one. Do you think this stuff was an accident? Do you think this happened by chance? Do you realize, do you know what Jesus' name is in Hebrew? Yeshua. Do you know what the English name for Yeshua is? Joshua. We call him Jesus because that's the Greek transliteration of Joshua, Iesus. His name in Hebrew, his mom and God named him Joshua. Yahweh saves, Yahshua. Do you think all of this stuff, do you think he just happened to randomly pass through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem? Do you think he randomly happened to find some tax collector and say, huh, do you want to come to my house or do you want me to come to your house? Do you think this is an accident? No, God has planned this. These are the mentions of the story of the city of Jericho in the Bible. God is working from beginning to end. It's all part of a master plan. But here's the point. If you only read Joshua chapter 6, you're going to miss the true character of God and what he's up to. Now there's a hint because Rahab is there. But only when you see the full scope of what God is up to do you realize that God has a plan for everything. Nothing is happening by accident. There's a reason he sent Elijah to Jericho. There's a reason why Elijah comes back and goes and heals the curse that there. It's all tied together. Isn't that amazing? But you know this same God who did this? He's writing the story of your life. Whatever news you got this week, if you look just at that news, it's possible to think it's this isolated thing, and you might get the wrong picture of who God is. But what God wants you to understand is, look, I've got this. Your day today, your week, whatever you heard, whatever you're going through, it's part of a larger plan. 
God works all things together for good. Nothing is happening by chance. Nothing is happening by accident. God is working all things together for good because God hates sin. God wants nothing to do with death and destruction. He's a rescuing God. He's a healing God. And whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're involved in, whatever it is that you're experiencing, it's part of a larger plan of God to bring rescue and grace and peace and love That's what he does. He's not a vengeful killing God. He's a loving God who, because of the sin in our life, has to fight to rescue us. And that's what he's doing. Everything this church is going through, everything you as an individual are going through, everything I'm going through, it's part of a... Who could... Look, you can study this stuff for... You can barely understand it after it's been written. He planned the whole thing. He pulled it all together. He made it all happen. That same God is at work in your life and my life. That's why he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. The God who works out all things in accordance with his perfect will is with you wherever you go. The second thing you're supposed to take away from this teaching is that if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you need to understand that the payment for sin is death. Sin brings destruction. Joshua chapter 6 is an object lesson. God is trying to say sin isn't just a problem. It destroys everything. It destroys relationships. It destroys creation. It destroys a person. It destroys everything. Sin brings death and the law simply adds to the curse but God the gift of God is eternal life given through Jesus Christ look at what God did to bring rescue if you're here this morning and you feel like an outcast an outcast in your own family an outcast in society an outcast in your own life because of the choices that you made whatever it is God is saying you're who I want to rescue you're what I'm here to get You're not here by accident this morning. Look, just like none of this stuff happened by accident, you sitting in that seat hearing these words this morning is not an accident. It is the plan of God to say to you, please don't choose death. Please don't choose destruction. Please... Life. Choose life. Look what Rahab got. Look what Zacchaeus got. It's God's gift. Free gift. They didn't work. They didn't earn it. They simply believed. You say, well, what, what, what did they believe? They believed that sin leads to death and destruction. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus to pay the price of the curse for us. You can die for the curse, or or Jesus can die for the curse. God is saying, let me pay the price for you. And to be a Christian is simply to say, okay, I accept. Last week we talked about it, Jericho. Sometimes God works with us. And sometimes God just does the work for us. This is God doing the work for you. And to say, I want to give it to you as a gift, not something you earn. I want you to have this because I love you. And listen, I'm going to tell you, the world is going to pick up the book of Joshua and they're going to read it and they go, what a vengeful, angry God. Look at all these people. That's not the full story. The full story is sin leads to death, but God brings salvation. God rescues tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. He loves doing it. This is what it's all about. 
And if you're here and you've not yet accepted that, destruction is coming. You already have begun to feel it. You've seen it in your life. But God is, has you here this morning to offer you salvation. And to say, come, receive it. Let's pray together. Father, we say with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of the majesty of the wisdom of God. Lord, who can even understand these things? Lord, we do our best and we study. We have to have your Holy Spirit explain them to us. How in the world did you even plan this, Lord? How in the world did you even pull this off? Only you can do such things. God, I pray for those who are here who think that perhaps their life is spun out of control or that they received news this week that would normally shake them. Lord, I pray that you would pull them up to 30,000 feet and you would let us see that you're in control of all things and that even the difficulty, the, the, the bad, it all works together for good because you are the one who can do this. God, we praise your name. Lord, for those of us who received an answer to our Jericho prayers immediately, that was part of your plan. Lord, for those of us who didn't receive answers to our Jericho prayers immediately, that's part of your plan. And it's because you had something better than answering immediately. God, you work all things out and we praise your name. Lord, who is like you? Lord, I pray that right now your spirit would impress upon those who don't yet know you as Father. Would you tell them that you are a God of love? Lord, I've told them, but you're going to have to convince them it's true. And I pray that your spirit would impress upon them that the free gift you're offering salvation is available to them this morning and God would you lead them to a place of knowing you may they experience the blessings of a God who works all things together for good we ask this in Jesus name amen